Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The 2022 Winter Olympics have kicked off in Beijing. Many world leaders attended the opening ceremony, thousands of athletes are participating, and millions of people will watch from around the world. Meanwhile, in the northwestern Xinjiang region of China, the government is implementing policies that many human rights organizations and foreign governments have determined amount to crimes against humanity and even genocide against the Uyghur people. The juxtaposition of this internationally celebrated Olympics in the midst of an ongoing human rights calamity is what drives our conversation today with four different speakers. Rushan Abbas is the founder and executive director of the Campaign for Uyghurs. Teng Biao is a Chinese human rights lawyer and the Posen visiting professor at the University of Chicago. Yacho Wong is the senior China researcher for Human Rights Watch, and Sean Roberts is a professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University and author of the book, The War on the Uyghurs. We recorded our conversation live on Twitter Spaces just before the opening ceremony, and this episode kicks off with Rushan Abbas explaining the circumstances of her sister's enforced disappearance in Xinjiang. Uh, Just a quick note before we start, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. Be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you are listening to get episodes as soon as they are released. Subscribing to the podcast as opposed to just listening to individual episodes ad hoc will also open up our huge archive of past content. I've been publishing two episodes a week every week since about 2013, And chances are, if there's a topic in international affairs which you are interested in, I've covered it. Uh, So just subscribe or follow the podcast, depending on the platform you use, that the term of art differs, in order to access that whole archive. All right. And now here is Rushan Abbas, founder and executive director of the Campaign for Uyghurs. So today I am advocating uh, for Uyghur people at the cost of my own sister's freedom. Um, As sister, Dr. Gulshan Abbas, um, she was taken just six days after I participated on a panel at the uh, Washington, D.C. Hudson Institute, and I talked about the... uh, genocidal policies of the Chinese government and the um, uh, talking about the um, current situation, the conditions of the concentration camps and outlining the fate of my in-laws, which my husband's entire family was missing since uh, summer of 2017. Just six days after that speech, my own sister, a retired medical doctor, was taken from her home. Um, She worked previously in a a state-run hospital and she retired early age uh, due to the health reasons. So it has been more than 42 months now and uh, still there's absolutely no trace or word on her uh, whereabouts. And we learned in December 2020 that... uh, uh, my sister Gulshan Abbas was sentenced harshly on the false charges with a secret trial with no evidence or no proof of life or a disclosure of uh, her location where she's being held. So basically she became a victim of uh, the CCP's uh, reprisal for my activism in the United States and they are holding her as hostage. And, and to be clear, do you know where she is located right now? No, unfortunately, I don't. We we don't know where she's being held at. And like, can you just maybe describe for the audience like the process you went through to try to learn about the whereabouts or the circumstances of 
your sister? I mean, it seems as you describe it, she's vanished into this like black hole. Yeah, exactly. As I mentioned earlier, just six days after my speech, uh, my sister and my uh, uh, maternal aunt, my mother's sister, they both were taken from two different cities about 1,400 kilometers away from each other. Uh, basically, my two closest living relatives back home. And then uh, when I find out that uh, they were missing, I waited for five weeks because um, my nieces, my daughters, two, um, my, my sister's two daughters, they both live in the United States, one in Virginia and one in Maryland. And they did not want me to uh, be vocal about this case because they were scared something bad might happen to their mother. Um, or they felt that maybe um, the government took her to just questioning her and that they may release her in a few days later. So they wanted me to wait. And we waited for five weeks, but no word, nothing. So I uh, wrote an op-ed published at Washington Post, and they, uh, I uh, gave an interview to New York Times. Then I had been speaking publicly and using the social media as a platform uh, to raise her case uh, while raising the millions of other Uyghur, innocent Uyghurs being held in concentration camps. Um, then what that uh, uh, resulted was uh, they released my uh, aunt um, in February, basically four or five months after the uh, detention, they released my aunt. But uh, absolutely no uh, response, no nothing on my sister's case. So, Do you have any sense of like, why they would release your aunt but not your sister? Because I was making a big uh, deal out of uh, how these two women from far away from each other, one from Urumqi, capital city, one from Atush, a town near Kashgar, which is you know nothing to do with each other. Two women, both are related to me. Both of them are unusual targets because they both aren't famous. They are not educators or writers or scholars. Neither has traveled to any uh, foreign Muslim majority countries, and they both speak fluent Chinese. And they both had a professional life. My sister is retired medical doctor. My aunt is retired school teacher. She's sixty some years old. So I was making this point as these two women were targeted because because of me, because of my activism. Uh, this is a retaliation for an American citizen exercising the freedom of expression, freedom of speech in the United States, and my relatives got targeted. So I think they just tried to take that point away from me that these two women from two cities disappeared on the same day, and they released my aunt. What has the search for your sister the um and and your generally more broadly speaking your activism uh, around this issue revealed to you uh, about the circumstances of Uyghurs in Xinjiang in looking for your sister have you learned anything sort of new or different about uh, the chinese government's oppression uh, in this region um mark be honest with you uh, unfortunately this is nothing new and I have been an activist from the time that I was a university uh, student when I was living in back home and going to school in Xinjiang University. And the, uh, the China's genocidal policies started to implement from the time that um, in the early 2012, when the Chinese government uh, implemented a uh, punishment on the spot policy, which means any armed forces could kill any Uyghur if they feel that the person is not following their orders. For example, um, if a traffic policeman um, could kill you if you ran the uh, red light or you are speeding and they, or if they try to arrest you if you resist because you are innocent. Radio Free Asia Uyghur service reported that an Uyghur teenager was shot to death by a traffic policeman when he ran a red light on his motorcycle. So any special forces and the armed police can raid into any Uyghur homes at any time they want, search and arrest as they wish, and kill as they wish. 
and even a high-level Chinese government official, Hu Lianghe, um, said actually uh, in one of the, the Chinese uh, media that um, the Uyghur situation should be taken to a final solution stage, basically referring to Nazi policy did uh, when they were exterminating the, the, the Jewish people. So, uh, so you earlier mentioned that your in-laws have also been targeted and arrested or detained. Are you comfortable? Are you able to speak about what's happened to them? Yes, absolutely. Um, my husband has been being very vocal about it, too. He wrote the book uh, called Menace, China's Colonization of the Islamic World and the Uyghur Genocide. And he talks about uh, his family and what happened to them. Um, since April 2017, my parents-in-laws, three of my husband's sisters, their husbands, his brother and sister-in-law, and the 14 of nieces and the nephews, total of 24 people, they all disappeared. They live in Khotan, a town in the southern part of East Turkestan. We call East Turkestan because Xinjiang is a colonizational name, means new territory, new border in Chinese. So they were taken. Um, the entire house they lived in, big house in, you know, like a court, uh, courtyard house all together in like very traditional style. Um, he has been told months and months after he lost contact with his family, he couldn't get hold of anyone, nobody's phone or home phone, nothing is working. So finally, when he was contacting some distances in abroad and in China proper, he has been told that there was a lock in his house, basically. Nobody was there. So probably the, the kids, the nieces and nephews were taken to the state-run orphanages as a part of about a million Uyghur children sent to government-run orphanages. And the, who knows, his brother uh, brother, and the uh, sister-in-law and the sisters and the brother-in-laws, they all sent to the forced labor facilities as millions of Uyghurs are used as a modern-day slavery today, making this genocide a, a profitable venture for the Chinese government. Uh, and I just want to note that a previous episode of my podcast focused on these state-run orphanages in which Uyghur children have been separated from their parents, taken to these orphanages. Uh, I'll, I'll post a link to that on Twitter uh, after this conversation concludes. Um, what's next for you in terms of the ser your search for your sister and your efforts on behalf of uh, both your family members and, and other Uyghurs? How are you sustaining your, your, your campaign? Um, the Chinese government is getting away with this modern day genocide and the, not just getting away, but when you look at it, they are starting the, the uh, opening of the Olympic Games, which means they are getting rewarded for targeting one ethnicity because of their religion, because of their culture and language. Um, the reason that they are getting away is because there are a lot of talks, but no tangible action. And they also, um, the Uyghur cause, Uyghur um, situation is known as like a top to bottom situation for most of the countries and the most of the uh, regions. A lot of governments and the leaders and people who are directly involved in China or human rights situation know what's happening, but majority of the uh, general public, civic societies, grassroots organizations still unaware of the genocide that Uyghurs are facing. So my um, goal is trying to engage the civic societies and raise awareness, educate the general public, and tell them, exposing the China's genocidal uh, policies and crimes against humanity. So right now, actually, I'm in Zagreb, in Croatia. And the, uh, from here, next stop is uh, Czech Republic and from there to Slovakia. So just trying to use every opportunity to educate the general public so they can talk to their lawmakers and their leaders to take action and hold China accountable. 
well, this conversation is certainly hopefully part of that effort. Um, I would like to bring yeah. into the conversation now Teng Biao and, and Rushan, please, please do stay uh, if you can. Thank you. My name is Teng Biao. I'm a human rights lawyer from China, currently teaching at uh, Hunter College and the University of Chicago. Uh, so, Teng Biao, the last time that Beijing hosted Olympics back in 2008, if I'm not incorrect, you experienced firsthand the government's drive to suppress human rights defenders ahead of the Summer Games. Can you describe like, what happened to you back in 2008 ahead of the previous Beijing Olympics? Yeah, I was a um, um, scholar and human rights lawyer at that time, and I co-authored an um, article uh, with Hu Jia, another human rights defender, um, it's um, you know talking about the uh, human rights situation in China uh, before Olympics, and then later uh, December uh, two thousand and seven, Hu Jia was arrested and eventually got um, uh, three years and a half, and uh, and then a few months before uh, Beijing Summer Olympics, I was kidnapped by Chinese secret police and detained for two days and two nights. And um, uh, I was uh, threatened like, to be uh, put into prison, uh, charged with uh, incitement of uh, states of worship. And um, I was also um, banned from traveling uh, internationally. And uh, um, my lawyer's license was uh, revoked um, three months before the opening ceremony. Um, so before the um, Olympics uh, in 2008, uh, there had been many human rights defenders and activists uh, being detained or or warned uh, and petitioners um, and uh, NGO activists uh, were all targeted. So that's um, the human rights situation um, deteriorated uh, before, uh, during, and after uh, Beijing Olympics, and also because of that uh, Olympic Games. Uh, like uh, some people were um, arrested because they uh, submit their um, applications from um, uh, demonstration. So uh, that's much sort of leads to, to my next question to you. Are, are you seeing a similar pattern, or have you seen a similar pattern? in which like a human rights crackdown has accelerated ahead of the uh, Olympics? Because, you know, on the one hand, you would think the opposite might be the case, that ahead of the Olympics, the uh, government might want to sort of not take too many drastic actions so as to like, you know, get into to sort of bad press and whatnot. But, but what have you seen uh, ahead of uh, these coming Olympics? I uh, keep regular contact with Chinese uh, human rights activists and dissidents, and uh, almost every one of them um, has been warned. And uh, some human rights lawyers and uh, defenders uh, have been arrested uh, just uh, within the, the past two months. And they, um, um, they were warned not to uh, speak out um, before Olympics. Um, so the uh, and for the past years, uh, this the censorship uh, on the internet and the media um, has been um, harsher, and the uh, many uh, non-government organizations have been uh, shut down, and uh, religious groups uh, were uh, targeted, and um, and you know uh, everyone knows the the Hong Kong uh, freedom and the rule of law have been destroyed. And the Tibetan human rights situation uh, is getting much, much worse, and uh, and not to mention the ongoing Uyghur genocide. Uh, so, you know, it is accelerating the, the, the crackdown, in other words. Yes, yeah. It, it, and, is and there like this, a specific yeah. like anecdote uh, or story you could share without putting anyone at risk of, of a human rights defender in China who you've been in contact with, who you know has been sort of gotten that knock on the door, as you said, ahead of the Olympics to stay silent? Yes, uh, so one of my uh, friends uh, is, um, she's from, from Beijing, but she's living in another city and she was told, uh, not to go back to Beijing, 
and um, and she and uh, uh, and many other uh, human rights uh, defenders and the bloggers uh, were told not to do anything, not to write anything about uh, Olympics, not to uh, criticize the, the 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 government or or human rights issues, and yeah, so they all. Um, experienced the same same thing. Uh, so I know that you are among a number of human rights uh, activists and, and lawyers who are pressing for minimum human rights standards for Olympic hosts. Can you sort of describe and discuss and explain what that campaign is and, and what you seek to achieve? Yeah, first is um, um, China made a commitment to improve human rights and the rule of law uh, when applying to uh, summer Olympics. Uh, and then they, they uh, broke that, that promise and the human rights uh, was not improved, but, um, but uh, uh, worsened. And then, uh, and then this time, uh, the, the genocide, you know, Chinese government is committing the, the, the most severe uh, crime uh, on international law and and uh, um, so it's really necessary to have a make a minimum human rights standard for all uh, Olympic hosts. Um, so to host uh, Olympic Games in a country uh, committing genocide and crime against the humanity is really against the Olympic Charter, uh, against uh, the, the uh, all those kind of human rights uh, uh, declarations and uh, and treaties. So uh, I'm involving um, uh, a joint article uh, led by Professor Ross. Uh, he's uh, now here um, uh, as a listener. So um, so it's uh, really important uh, to um, to campaign uh, that the 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 IOC and the international community should establish a um, human rights standard for future. Olympic hosts. Have you had any interaction uh, to that end with the International Olympic Committee? Have you tried to reach out to them? Uh, since 2015, when Beijing was given the opportunity to host the Olympics again, uh, we um, we started our campaign and we uh, we gave pressure to IOC and demanded a, a, a dialogue with them. But they just uh, refused to respond until uh, the October of twenty uh, twenty, and uh, we uh, organized uh, the more than one hundred and eighty human rights organizations. Um, we, we wrote open letters, and then uh, under that kind of pressure, the IOC agreed to talk with us. So I was one of the five representatives of those uh, uh, human rights organizations. And we raise our concerns. Uh, we uh, talk about uh, uh, Tibetan uh, human rights, uh, genocide, Hong Kong, everything. And the IOC knew that, and and their message uh, was clear. They don't care of human rights, and they won't postpone or cancel uh, the the Winter Olympics, and they won't give any uh, pressure to Beijing. They won't talk about uh, human rights to Beijing uh, officials. Hmm. Uh, but they did use the opportunity to sort of advertise that they spoke with human rights defenders as a way to sort of um, whitewash uh, what was happening, it seems. Yeah, they, they, they are cooperating with Chinese government to whitewash uh, the atrocities and the crimes. And they have gone even further, like uh, uh, helping uh, Chinese government to cover up uh, the truth of uh, Peng Shui case. And uh, and it's uh, you know uh, Chinese government uh, uh, forced Peng Shui to be silent, and uh, and IOC uh, under the arrangement of uh, Chinese government uh, talked with Peng Shui uh, a few times, and but uh, but their message uh, is uh, totally uh, false. Peng Shui is not free, is not safe, but uh, IOC uh, is in uh, complicit in. That um, that crime, that suppression.
And, and just to be clear for those unaware, Peng Shui is, is the uh, Chinese tennis star who uh, made accusations against senior leadership in China of uh, sexual assault and then was effectively silenced and, and sort of disappeared for a while, but then has sort of popped back up uh, a few times, uh, often sort of under the auspices of, of the, the Chinese government. Yeah. Um, I want to bring uh, Ya Cho Wang from Human Rights Watch uh, into the conversation. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Ya Cho Wang. I'm a senior China researcher for Human Rights Watch. Have you or basically anyone from Human Rights Watch had direct conversations with the IOC about human rights concerns ahead of the Olympics? Yes, uh, we wrote to them uh, at the end of 2020. Then we had a conversation uh, at the beginning of 2021, which the head, the chairperson of the Chi- Chinese uh, Olympics Organizing Committee, uh, uh, Huan, Huan Samaranch Jr., joined us. And during the conversation, he just, you know, repeated the old same same old lines about, uh, you know, the Olympics is a force for good, uh, things like that. But uh, did not address anything, you know, specifically to our concern, you know, the crimes against humanity uh, are happening in Xinjiang. You know, the, 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 there's no real answers to our questions, just the old same, same old mm-hmm. lines. So, so you, you didn't get much, much headway there. So I take it that then Human Rights Watch decided to, um, you know, raise their concerns, your concerns with the sponsors of the International Olympic Committee and the sponsors of the, of the Beijing Olympics. It, I mean, have you had sort of direct conversations with some of these major sponsors? Who are these major sponsors uh, as well? Uh, there are, uh, you know, 13 very big companies, including Airbnb, Alliance, Coca-Cola, Intel, P&G, Visa, etc. We wrote to every one of them, you know, asking them whether you have co- conducted a due diligence to make sure there's no human rights violations pertaining to your operation in China. You know, can you pressure the IOC to do better on human rights because you are paying for the games, right? You have leverage. Uh, we wrote to every one of them. Only Alliance responded to us with the generic lines. Uh, Alliance, also, that big yeah. insurance company, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Then we also wrote to NBC, which is the broadcaster of the Olympic Games. Uh, I think about 40% of IOC's revenue is from uh, NBC. So, I, I mean, they respond to us too, but with more, you know, the generic lines about we care about human rights, uh, you know, we have conducted due diligence. But, uh, you know, then we ask them, can you be more specific of the due diligence you carried out? Uh, can we know more details? And then, you know, there's no... No further discussion on that. So, so basically, there has been no real effort on the part of sponsors to use whatever leverage they might have to raise human rights concerns. That's our understanding, or at least, you know, they have not communicated to us uh, or publicly about what they're doing. But, uh, you know, I doubt, you know, there are things that, uh, you know, they like uh, the, the, I doubt they are doing the, the kind of human rights due diligence they are, we are asking them to do. Uh, you know, I wish you know, they would be more. If they were doing it, I, I, I would expect them to be more, you know, public about the good things they're doing. Well, like, what does that sort of reluctance to, you know, use whatever commercial leverage they have to press for human rights in, in China sort of reveal to you more broadly about how major corporations uh, you know, are approaching China? Well, I mean, it all says because they care so much about the you know, market access to, because there, there's so much money to be made in China. And the Chinese government has, has a history of using you know, economic leverage, using market access to pressure companies and countries to for all kinds of political goals, it's very interesting. I have to mention that you know Intel, Intel, which is uh, one of the top sponsors. So after the U.S. government passed the uh, Uyghur uh, Forced Labor Prevention Act, which you know in effect banned uh, uh, imports from Xinjiang, uh, the Intel the company wrote a letter to its 
you know, its partners in the supply chain saying, you know, make sure that uh, you're not source anything uh, that is related to forced labor or from Xinjiang. And then, you know, that letter itself, basically a letter saying, you know, be careful, make sure that, you know, no forced labor is involved in your supply chain. That letter, uh, you know, made people in China upset. They, then Intel has to apologize for writing that letter. You can see the degree of companies being afraid of upsetting the Chinese government. On this question of, of forced labor in supply chains, do you? I mean, do you have a sense of the extent to which um, slavery is corrupting and forced labor is corrupting global supply chains uh, throughout you know th- throughout the world? Is there any like research that suggests to you? Uh, for example, like like the cotton industry, which I, I know is big in the, in that region, or other uh, other manufacturing exports are corrupted by slavery in the supply chain. Yes, there are good research, and there's an organization called uh, you know the Coalition to End Forced Labor in uh, the Uyghur region. It's a coalition of different organizations. They have done you know research on this issue. Uh, you know. Especially on the issue of uh, cotton, I think ha- you know, like they are the cotton. Also, the what's the English word? Phyllis- There's a co- component um, of uh, solo panel. You know, half of that the component of four solo panel were also made in Xinjiang. So there are very good evidence to say you know some of the uh, you know materials are that was sold by big companies involved some forms of forced labor. This is one thing, you know, their research show that. Secondly, that uh, auditing is very, very hard in Xinjiang. So, you know, some very big, several big auditing companies said, you know, we can't really access uh, the region to do sufficient uh, uh, due diligence. So, you know, we are quitting doing this in Xinjiang for, in Xinjiang for big companies. And it, and I think it's probably it's you know going to be become more and more difficult to, to do this satisfactory due diligence to make sure you know forced labor is not involved in Xinjiang. Yeah, I mean it seems on the one hand auditors are excluded from the region, but even if you are able to access the region, I can't imagine that individuals will be free to explain that in fact their their labor is coerced. Right, right. I mean, there are, you know, government organized tools for journalists, for diplomats to go to Xinjiang, and then they will show you the happy Uyghurs who are dancing and singing. I mean, it's, if you know, that's the kind of thing they wanted to show you when you go to Xinjiang. There's no freedom. You can't really do independent investigation uh, in the region. Uh, I wanted to bring Sean Roberts into the conversation. Uh Sean, would you mind uh, unmuting and uh, introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Sean Roberts. I'm uh, an associate professor in the practice of uh, international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. Uh, so, Sean, you know, we are speaking, uh, you know, obviously ahead of the Olympics, but also ahead of a diplomatic boycott of the uh, Olympics, principally over the human rights abuses in uh, Xinjiang or East Turkmenistan. Um, one, I think one thing that was interesting to me was to see the degree to which um, America's international allies have gone along with this so-called diplomatic boycott. Do you see this boycott as having like any meaningful impact um, on, if not sort of human rights conditions inside China more broadly in how the international community approaches questions of human rights in China? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't think it has much direct influence on China's behavior. Um, <clears throat> I do think it's important to note that while I, I'm sure the U.S. put a lot of diplomatic pressure to get other countries to sign on to this, there was also a lot of grassroots mobilization around it. Um, and in European countries, uh, there are numerous uh, Uyghur organizations that have been working on this for some time. And um, I think, you know, that may be the bigger sign that we see with this diplomatic boycott is that 
uh, I think the international community is realizing that um, if China doesn't change its uh, domestic political behavior, it's going to become increasingly a problem in the international realm that um, increasingly countries are more skeptical of dealing with China um, in any number number of levels uh, because uh, there's questions about the country's intent. Um, so Yacho in her remarks cited commercial interests as, of course, driving some of the major Olympic sponsors in terms of their inability or reluctance to press China or even the IOC on human rights issues in China. I mean, just as uh, the uh, major corporations have sort of dueling interests when it comes to doing business in China, so too do, you know, major governments uh, around the world, including the United States. I guess my question to you is, What's the right balance that that a government that the um, Biden administration specifically uh, ought to take in terms of prioritizing its interests in in China? You know, the, the Biden administration, of course, needs to work with China on things like you know global environmental pacts and and other key issues uh, of importance to U.S. foreign policy. But then you have, of course, like the worst crime known to humanity ongoing in China. How does one balance those priorities? Well, I think it's important uh, to not kind of set them up as a a stark dichotomy. Um, you know, there there there's plenty of opportunity to both collaborate on global issues, which are in the interest of both the United States and China, and there's other opportunities to try to put pressure on China so that it recognizes what it's doing in the Uyghur region is not in their best interests. Um, and I do think that uh, the financial pressure is the best way to do that because that's really China's power in the world. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's concerning me is that we do see a sense uh, that, that the Uyghur issue starts getting wrapped up into geopolitical uh, machinations. And that's not uh, that's not really helpful to the Uyghur people, I think, because uh, then it it kind of sets up two sides, the West and China. Uh, I think this is a, a humanitarian issue that the whole world has to be concerned about, uh, not only because of what's happening to the, to the Uyghur people in inside China, but also because it sets a very dangerous precedent for the way that various states can go after uh, separate ethnic groups, religious groups, and essentially uh, try to forcibly uh, assimilate them, destroy their identity, destroy their social capital. Um, and I think that that precedent uh, is also problematic because it's, it's, it's uh, being done in part through new technologies of surveillance that are really available to every country in the world. And uh, the Chinese government's also marketing those technologies worldwide. Uh, and if, if there is not some sort of stance on uh, what are the accepted um, uh, behaviors of states within their borders, uh, I think that we start losing uh, any kind of semblance of uh, the idea of human rights writ large. I guess, I mean, to that end, I mean, is there a sort of specific policy prescription you would um, recommend to the Biden administration? I mean, they inherited the situation where I think it was the last day of the Trump administration in which Pompeo declared this to be a genocide. And, you know, U.S. law sort of demands that, you know, once a genocide is declared, something has to be done. Is there like a, a specific or discrete policy recommendation you would urge the Biden administration to strongly consider? I mean, I, I do think that uh, what it's been pursuing so far in terms of um, uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Act in particular um, could really put pressure on China in a way that is not, um, you know, it, it doesn't signal 
of full-out conflict and confrontation, but it basically is trying to send a message to the elite within the Chinese Communist Party that things have started to get out of control within the country. And if we do want to be uh, a leader globally, then we have to um, we have to change what we're doing inside our borders. Uh, and we have to recognize some international norms of state uh, acceptable state behavior. So I do think I do think the um, the Uyghur Forced Labor Act, if it is, can, can you just explain very briefly what that act entails and, and demands? Well, the act the act demands that um, companies uh, that operate in the United States uh, that sell their products in the United States cannot have any uh, anything in their supply chain that has Uyghur forced labor um, involved in its production. Uh, now, it also puts the onerous on companies to police themselves, which uh, a lot of companies have complained about precisely because what was just said by my colleague from Human Rights Watch, it's very difficult to um, to police your own uh, supply chain within China. Um, but beyond that, the question is, how is the United States going to actually implement that? How are How is the United States going to police that and ensure that companies are not violating that law. Um, and it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and I think it's going to end up more generally forcing a lot of companies to minimize their um, production in China. They may still want to um, try to uh, have the market for selling their goods, but they may start uh, deciding that it's too dangerous to produce in China because because uh, a lot of the uh, residential labor programs that have moved Uyghurs into factory settings uh, have been uh, also outside of the Uyghur region. So we see that there's factories that have been documented elsewhere in inner China uh, that are tied to multinational corporations that are are using Uyghur forced labor. I do want to ask uh, Rushan, like what, what comes next uh, in, in terms of both your activism and the current situation uh, on the ground and the current campaign uh, against the Uyghurs? Are there any sort of key inflection points or key moments uh, that you see after the Olympics as being key opportunities to once again raise the issue of these crimes against humanity and, and genocide on the international stage? Thank you, Mark, giving me opportunity to uh, talk about this again. Well, we are extremely frustrated with the international community and the United Nations. Um, as I said earlier, there are a lot of talks, but no real action. And the situation back home, and not only it's not getting better, but it's getting worse. The people um, who have any kind of access to East Turkestan or even our diplomats in Beijing are saying the situation is far worse than what we are talking about, what everybody's reporting here. Um, in what way? Could, could you elaborate? Uh, people are disappearing. There's no more Uyghurs on the streets. Han Chinese people are massively brought to the area. And the uh, uh, like Tesla just opening a new uh, you know, factory or shop in Urumqi and the Hilton uh, opening a hotel in a place that the Uyghur mosque was demolished. And all these Western corporations uh, like Volkswagen, Siemens and the other companies are uh, public, you know, like openly, widely investing in the area and using the Uyghurs as uh, forced laborers. The Uyghurs are taken out of their homeland and the, uh, um, sent to the forced labor facilities. And also the Uyghurs' homes 
are being reallocated to Han Chinese people, their land, their homes, and the, uh, their assets and their money in the banks. So when you look at, you know, the 10 stages of the genocide as the model that the UN or uh, the US State Department use in uh, taking steps to end genocide, um, classification, symbolization, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the other ones like preparation or polarization, persecution. Routinization is one of them. Yeah. Um, so the last stage is denial. Well, they are saying that there's no mass graves or mass killings or gas chambers, but all these denials are coming out of um, the Western scholars or those uh, so-called United Front or YouTubers or, uh, you know, Canadians or Americans living in China, uh, like this uh, a person from uh, Hawaii, Einar Tenjin. He is uh, an American. I'm shamefully, you know, saying that he's an American. Um, he is basically being the CCP's mouthpiece, denying the uh, anything about the, the Uyghurs or the genocide. So what are we waiting for? You know, uh, one of the MEP uh, uh, from Italy, uh, he said back in that early 2019, uh, when he gave a speech in the European Parliament, he said, colleagues, there's concentration camps are back. And what are we waiting for? mass killings or gas chambers? Well, that's not going to happen because this is a modern-day genocide. Uh, China is taking lessons from the World War II. The Chihautian, one of the Chinese government officials, actually uh, talked in one of his speeches uh, why, in his opinion, why Nazi Germany and Japan lost during the World War II? Because uh, there are so many things that uh, you know, like why they lost, that they are taking that as a lessons learned to uh, hide the evidence and they uh, manipulate the international community. And now they are sports washing the genocide, legitimizing the genocide tomorrow, uh, inviting the international, uh, uh, you know, um, the community for the opening ceremony. So, it's the, the situation for Uyghurs is very, very grim, very frustrating. But now I am uh, trying to warn the world that not just the sake of the Uyghurs, which the Uyghur tribunal after three hearings delivered the verdicts that the Chinese Communist Party is uh, committing a genocide against the Uyghurs. And we have overwhelming evidence from the former victims and the uh, researchers but I am saying this for the sake of the free world, the freedom and the democracy that our, your parents actually in this country and in, in Europe and United States worked so hard to establish last 50 years, last 70 some years. That's what's at stake. China is waging a war on freedom and democracy. If we don't stop China now, this is the last call. If we don't stop the communist Chinese regime now, just look at the Uyghur people's situation today and the picture, the future of the world that we are living for our children and our grandchildren in the future. Uh, thank, thank you. Uh, Teng Biao, I wanted to ask you a, a similar question. Um, what opportunities do you see, uh, if any, uh, are able, are open, are, are sort of ripe to, you know, keep pressing on the human rights issue after the Olympics? Are there any sort of inflection points that are coming up or otherwise, what strategies do you think will be most effective and impactful? Uh, yeah, thank you. It seems that uh, Chinese government um, care uh, less about uh, human rights, about the, the uh, the pressures from the international community, um, but uh, there it's, it's it's difficult. But there are something we can do and we should do, and uh, there are some some powerful uh, tools uh, policies we already 
uh, adopted like a global Magnitsky Act and the uh, Uyghur Human Rights Act and, and similar uh, sanctions. Um, so we should, um, uh, you know, uh, punish those human rights uh, um, uh, abusers and the perpetrators and block block them from entering uh, United States and other free countries and freezing their assets. So that's that that's one thing uh, we can do. And another thing is uh, the the forced labor. So the uh, we should make sure uh, we'll take more steps to uh, to uh, that the global business uh, not involving in. Uh, forced labor uh, in, in in Xinjiang and other areas. Uh, the um, the you know the, the consumers. We are all uh, consumers, and we can uh, do something uh, to to boycott or or uh, divide. And and uh, they uh, they they must face some uh, consequence if those uh, uh, global business continue to be complicit in the forced labor and other crimes. They should be uh, punished. Uh, Yacho, same same question to you. What else can be done, and are there any sort of other opportunities or reflection points coming up? Uh, I completely agree with Tung Biao's two points. Uh, I just wanted to add one more is that, I mean, it's all about the money. The Chinese government is betting on, you know, foreign companies is going to continue to carry into the government for market access. So that's the foreign, you know, international business, in, including Intel, Airbnb. The other side is that there are a lot of Chinese companies are doing business outside of China, the surveillance company, you know, all, all kinds of, uh, you know, the big Alibaba tech companies, uh, also companies manufacturing things. So, and those companies are complicit in human rights violations in China, especially in Xinjiang, you know, big surveillance companies like Hikvision. And those companies who are doing bad things in China should be banned from doing bad things, uh, doing, uh, you know, doing business outside of China for their actions inside China. This is another leverage that foreign governments can use to pressure the Chinese government to change behavior. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to our speakers for joining me live for this very important topic on really short notice. I do sincerely appreciate they're taking the time to chat with me and also uh, they stuck around after I finished uh, my questions for them to take questions from the audience. If you're ever interested in participating in one of these live tapings, just follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. All right, I'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.